Getting that first award is one of the most exciting opportunities for a small business in government contracting. For new entrants or companies that have been struggling to get their footing in the government contracting space, that first opportunity can seem like an almost impossible task. Observing the winners, businesses find themselves wondering, what did they do to get that award? And may even think, man, they're so lucky. But is it really luck or is it something more refined? Welcome to Unveiled GovCon Stories, where we explore the experiences and share the stories of small businesses in government contracting to spotlight the often sugar-coated or avoided discussions that speak to the reality of doing business within the U.S. public sector as a small business. On this episode, we are joined by Calvin Mitchell, who was appointed to Senior Executive Services as Director of the U.S. Department of Education Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization in 2021. Mr. Mitchell is responsible for implementing the department's small business procurement program, across $2.8 billion procurement operation and implementing policies and initiatives throughout the department to ensure that all socioeconomic categories of small businesses are afforded opportunities to compete for contracts. Prior to the OSDE boom, Mr. Mitchell was the Deputy Director of Contracts and Acquisition Management, CAM, and as the CAM Deputy Director in the Office of Chief Financial Officer, he was responsible for overseeing the work of four contracting divisions that provide operational procurement services to the Department of Education. Prior to joining the department, Mr. Mitchell served as the branch chief of the Accounts Management Division at the General Services Administration, where he led the organization towards meeting the government-wide strategic goals to support all 24 CFO Act agency vision, mission, and strategic goals. Separately, Mr. Mitchell served as a congressional fellow for the U.S. House of Representatives, Homeland Security Committee, reporting to Chairman Benny Thompson, where he was the principal procurement advisor to committee leadership and provided guidance and oversight to members and committee staff on procurement, small business programs, and related acquisition issues within the Department of Homeland Security. Mr. Mitchell has also held leadership positions at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and started his acquisition career with the U.S. Army Contracting Command in New Jersey, where he successfully completed the Department of Defense Contract Specialist Intern Program. He's a certified federal contract manager with the National Contract Management Association and maintains his FACC Level 3 certification in contracting. He has an undergraduate degree in business and an MBA from Centenary University of New Jersey. Fun fact, Calvin delivered his own son, and it definitely was not on purpose. Thank you so much, Calvin, for being brave, pulling back the curtain, and sharing your GovCon story with us. So tell us your story. Hey, like you just said, I'm here to deliver. So let me talk about how I delivered a contract opportunity. Um, it was much uh, less painful than my son, I'm sure. There was a small business who came to me and uh, had never done work with the federal government. And this person was actually frustrated. And, and I'm a person who wants to help. You can kind of see that from the things that I've done throughout my career. Uh, and I, I just wanted to be one who changed the narrative. I was surprised when the person uh, was actually shocked that I took a meeting as a director. And I'm, I'm thinking that that's a normal thing, but apparently it wasn't. And so uh, we sat down, we talked about the department. I listened to, to what they what they do uh, and we, we uh, exchanged information. And I said to them, I said, well, register in our system and I will keep my eyes open and you keep your eyes open on the forecast. But I said, one of the great ways to really get contracts 
uh, in this marketplace, especially because they were new 8A, by the way, uh, is by looking at these expiring contracts that are coming out from the agencies and see if you can be the new the, the new contractor to take over those contracts. So we were actually, we had parted ways. And as I always say, check in with me here and there. Uh, and I was sitting in a meeting. Uh, it was a senior executive meeting and all the executives were around the table and they were talking about, it sounded like they were talking specifically about this company's capabilities. And I raised my hand and I said, I can, I can, I can find you a contractor that can do this work. Uh, and then I, con- I reached out to the contractor, I called, I called her up and I said, Hey, this is, can you do this work? Uh, and she was like, yeah, this is, that's exactly what I do. Several months later, she gets her first contract, first 8A award, first government prime award. Uh, and she's the first time her, of course, working with the Department of Education. That is what it's all about, right? Um, because it, it helps me, it helps her, and ultimately it, it, it's, it's a good news story. And we always love those good news stories, but that's one of many. Um, that happened. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to talk to you and, and talk a little bit more about uh, this federal contract in game. And that's amazing to hear a good story. And I think for our listeners, some of which are in that same boat of just trying to figure out how we get that first contract, how we get our foot in the door. It's always nice to hear that someone did it somewhere that was just like you that maybe had some set aside status or maybe didn't, but was able to get through to the right person um, and, and get some traction, more importantly, leave enough of a lasting impression with that person about their yes. capabilities, um, about their company, and about their um, means, their wherewithal to be able to support the agency in a way that kept them in the top of mind when the opportunity presented itself. So, I mean, that's the kind of story and the, the good news that we definitely want to hear. Tasha and I talk a lot about kind of the fundamental processes of being a small business and how you grow your business and those initial steps to take. But we really wanted to talk more with you today about kind of the nitty gritty, not just the process of, you know, sign the sheet, dot the I, make sure you've got a contract in place. We talk a lot about that. But coming from you, who's seen, you know, a myriad of different scenarios, companies of all sizes, contracts, oh, my God, of all sizes, shapes, forms. Um, resource requirements, getting your opinion on what it really takes to be able to get your foot in the door. And as a woman-owned small business, a hub zone, or maybe even a new entrant without a set-aside status, how you go about becoming that business that is both technically credible as well as identifying your target marketplace, understanding your audience, because that individual that reached out to you had at least done enough homework to know that your office or your team was the right person to get in front of. I, I doubt that was by accident to reach the director. Um, and yes, I would have been floored had the director returned my call as well. I, I would have probably sent you to voicemail just out of like thinking it was spam because it was like, there's no way <laughs> director Mitchell is calling me back. Um, but, um, you know, we want to get into more of the details around really, really what when the rubber hits the road, what kinds of things you all look for and how businesses can prepare themselves to to be in that opportunity and really be able to flourish and run with it. That's amazing. I want to dissect the that concept of determining technical credibility that Yaz just spoke about. So could you please share with us from your perspective, what does technical credibility mean? Technical credibility really speaks to what is that core functional area 
that real, if I were to say to you, what is the one thing that I light on fire every single time? What is that core technical credibility? What is that core competency, if you will, that you have that you want to lead with? Because that is going to be your bread and butter. Oftentimes I see companies um, maybe have a couple different things that they try to lead with. Establishing one or even two, or if they're related, but leading with that. And here's the best thing about you as a small business. You as a small business, whatever your background is, whatever that technical capabilities, if you're a micro small business, right? And it's just you uh, and your background is, is IT um, and maybe IT consulting. That's going to be the best technical credibility that you have and that technical competency that you have. In that field is what you have to lead with. And it's even good, even like I said, even if you're a micro small business where you can hone in on that and lead with that and lean hard on that, uh, because that's where you're going to that's where you're going to start. That's where you're going to build. And that's where you're going to be able to grow while you still are lean. Right. Uh, you don't need a lot of people and finding people to onboard to 1099 because you are the subject matter expert. And that's what I always say. Well, and that's why I always ask people, uh, people who have met with me, I always ask, why did you start your business? What were you doing before you were a business owner? Why? Because I want to know what is that background that you have, because that's something we're going to be able to leverage. That's something you're going to be able to leverage when you're talking to your customer and establishing why you deserve to be in the room and why you're going to add a value to the government that we don't yet have. Because more than likely, there's a very high likelihood that you are the smartest person in the room as a business <laughs> owner, right? Right. Because you know the marketplace, right? Yeah. You don't have the 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 uh, handcuffs of government regulations and things that tend to stifle innovation, right? You know what those emerging technologies are. You know what those things are, right? So a lot of times I always say, and I know we're going to get into this a little later, Make sure you establish yourself and that technical credibility, but what's that core competency you have? And then from there, you can build upon that and that will subsequently lead to other opportunities for you. Yeah. And it's really interesting you brought that up because in the, the first part you brought up, Natasha, we've, I forget what episode it was, but we talked about one versus many and the value of having and at what point, and we, I don't think we dug too deep into at what point can you, what size standard or what, where's really the threshold where it makes sense for you to have multiple functional areas or multiple levels of expertise. But I think it was maybe in a question and state or a statement and answer where we really discussed as a small business honing in on the things you do well versus trying to be everything to everyone. Because A, it's a tough sell as right. how are you a company of five, a subject matter expert in 10 different things. Um, right. And it's also hard to articulate um, when 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 pointed questions are asked about any level of depth about any one thing, because you're yeah. trying to do so many things as a small business. So it's great that you brought that up coming, obviously, from your side as well. Calvin. And, and, and also, you know, it's not just like what, you know, it, it is a measure of that, but that's not the only thing. It's also how effectively you can apply that knowledge like to practical challenges in execution. So it's not just, you know, being smart and having certifications and having done it for 10 years, you have to be agile in your mindset and being able to do, to apply it 
um, for that client's nuances or uh, special considerations that are happening in those different environments. And so having that very specific um, competency, it, it's, it's, it's important because yes, you got the quals and the certs, but there's that reputation piece, there's that communication skills component, that integrity, that problem solving ability, you know, even peer recognition is uh, helpful as well because it, it just builds more confidence and trust in the capacity and capability. So um, technical credibility is all those things. Um, Tasha, can I can I add one more thing? Sure. Is that yeah. I just want to pull a string on something you said. And so a lot of times people are wondering, well, where do I start in terms yeah. of like in the very infancy stages of the business, where do I start? And I want to encourage those, if you are able to solve a problem, you probably can find business. This game is all about solving problems that we don't know how to answer or helping us to solve problems that we don't have enough people to answer or solving problems that we don't have the technology or the capacity to solve, right? And that's in a myriad of ways, right? Mm -hmm. IT, right? Uh, we have people who come in and look and access, uh, access what we have and give us recommendations on what we should do in terms of IT modernization. We have people come in on the professional service side and look at our requirements and look at some of what we're doing in terms of our organization and help us to improve our organization. We have people who are on the data side or the research side that are looking at how we uh, administer grants and how we and what's the complexion and ethnic demographics and if that's the right distribution. You're coming in and looking at problems and helping us solve. Inherently, no matter what you do, if you're able to solve a problem, if you're able to provide recommendations, if you're able to help us get closer to solutions and accelerate the path in which we would get to those outcomes, you deserve to be in business. And so when I say technical capability or competency or core competencies, it's not that you have to be an expert or PhD or whatever you may think that may be at the higher echelons uh, of education. You just need to be able to solve problems and be able to provide methodologies to help us to get to our outcomes, if that makes sense. Now, that makes a lot of sense. The second part of that, and we talk about technical and not technical from the sense of information technology, but technical from the sense of marketable, defined uh, characteristics or qualifications. We want to jump into the second part of that, which is which target market. So for, for new entrants and, and folks just kind of curious also to what we mean by target markets, it's really a specific group of potential customers or clients that a business aims to reach with its product or service. Um, the behavior, the psychographics, and other characteristics that make them more likely to be interested in a, or um, responsive to what a business offers. So, I mean, let's flip the script and have you share with us some of the characteristics and components of a small business that would be a good fit for your department or for those that you represent. Because obviously with your position working in a small business, you've got components in, in groups across the agency. You've got a, a really wide lens that you have to look through, but any examples that you could share for, you know, what would be a good small business in terms of 
understanding what your client or, or, or your environment is as a target market. Yes. So I'm going to take this in two parts. So the first part I'm going to, I want to, uh, to talk about for the Department of Education, a lot of what we're doing here is IT services. Uh, we're doing a lot of IT consultants, a lot of, um, I guess, DevOps, develop, software development, um, system development, operation and maintenance of systems. Uh, we do a lot of professional services, which would be um, studies, which would be um, analysis of, of different um, types of programs, helping with um, policy administration. Uh, but there's also a research um, component to it where we are looking for people who have uh, data analytics skills, people who are able to uh, do surveying, those types of things, right? And they all, pro I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty, but that basically fits into some of the, well, most of what some of our program areas, right? To include um, maybe being aware of financial services for our federal student aid, load and processing, debt collection, those kind of things, right? And I think everybody's familiar with federal student aid. So <laughs> understanding yeah. that that is a component say, that is under so your umbrella. If there's ever a program <laughs> that I think everyone knows about, that one, that one's it. That 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 was it, and there's probably a love hate relationship there, I, uh, which I which I can understand. So so those are the things. But I always say, what's more important than anything else, and if you don't take anything else away from what I say today, is that you have to have a vehicle, you have to have a acquisition methodology to how your customer will get to you. The biggest barrier in federal contracting is the mechanisms. Right. What do you mean, Calvin? Um, if my contracting office, which is true, generally uses the GSA schedule, if you're not on the GSA schedule, it doesn't matter how amazing you are. It's going to be difficult for me to get to you unless it's a simplified acquisition. And then I could probably come up with some different methodologies. I always say that you need to set yourself apart in terms of technical capabilities. But you also have to make yourself accessible. And it's not always the 8A program, right? And that's what I tell people. It's not always the 8A program. I am a huge advocate for the schedules program, not because I used to work at GSA, just because I think that's the best vehicle for many different reasons. One, it's an evergreen contract. Your GSA, your GSA GWACs, your NASA contracts, they all have on-ramp periods that are scheduled, that are projected, right? GSA schedule, you can get on a contract at any time, right? It's always an open period, which is great for me because if you're a new small business and I want to get you in the marketplace, we have now a pathway. We're going to develop relationships for the next six months or so, seven months or however long it takes. Meanwhile, you're going to be plowing through the process of the schedule so that when you come out on the other end of this, having the schedule, now we have a mechanism because now we only need three quotes for me to do a set aside, right? And I can either go directly or compete it a little more broadly. But now we have a methodology to how I can get there. And I have now empowered that small business to turn around and use that as a marketing strategy for themselves. Even if they were, if, even if they found an opportunity where they were able to sole source a contract, right? The rules for a sole source outside of the 8A program is very cumbersome, unless 
It's a limited sources determination, which is found under FAR Part 8, which is the GSA schedules, right? So it's a very versatile tool, right? We can do time and materials. We can do labor hours. We can do firm fixed price. There's a lot of flexibility. And so what I tell my companies, I can probably convince them to put it on the schedule, but you got to get on the schedule so we can meet. I can probably provide you with opportunities and carve out opportunities or at least put you in the right path, but you have to always say you you, you got to build a runway before the plane comes in, right? And that's essentially what we have to do in federal contracting because it doesn't matter if you're able to sell a great a great solution if that customer can't get to the solution, right? And again, 8A, uh, even though with all the issues that are going on, that's still another good vehicle. Um, I think these government-wide contracts are a little difficult, but I think the schedule is probably the best way. Uh, I feel like less and less agencies are using what I call open market procedures, Federal Acquisition Regulation Part 15 or even 13, where they're putting requirements out on system for award management. I feel like it doesn't happen as much. And what you're not seeing is there's a whole undercurrent of contracts being awarded on the GSA schedule, but you can't see it because you don't have the GSA schedule contract. Yeah. So uh, for us, I really have been pushing that because one, we don't do a lot of cost reimbursement contracts. Uh, and if we do need some, like some sort some sort of a flavor like that, it'll either be time and material or labor hours type contracts where we can still kind of be a little more flexible in the cost. And if we, uh, if there's uncertainties that we may need, we can always get OLMs, uh, order level materials pulled into the GSA schedule. And so we tend to use that contract a lot. Another thing that I always um, say is that um, you're get certified in one of the programs, if you can, that are, that you may be eligible for, because that really helps. There may be, uh, I don't know, 25, 30,000 small businesses that are out there, right? That may be participating in this marketplace. Well, if you're a woman-owned small business, that's like 8,000. I don't know about you, but I would rather compete against 8,000 than 25,000. Yeah. And guess what? If you're on the schedule, it's even less, mm -hmm. right? And so a big part of it is, because we have um, competition rules and regulations within the federal government, everybody is supposed to get a big bite at the apple. But there are rules within the regulations that allow us to curtail um, how we compete contracts and still count for competition, right? If I do, uh, if I do a, a order on GSA schedule and uh, I say everybody who's under this NAICS code or this, uh, they used to call it the SIN, special identification number. Uh, you can you can compete. That's considered competition in the same way that if I say Tasha's company, Yas's company, Calvin's company, I'm going to send you a, 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 um, a RFP directly. They're both competition. So when it comes to the government, what is a way that you can make it easy and effortless and create accessibility for yourself? between because that's that's the barrier. The mm -hmm. barrier that you're gonna face is sometimes that acquisition methodology and how you can overcome that is to provide that solution before it even becomes a problem, right?
-hmm. You want to solve the problem before it even becomes a problem. You want to cut it off at the pass. So that way it'll accelerate your ability to to get to uh to an award. And so you kind of talked about a little bit about like being um being a very new entrant or a small business uh with a specific set aside, but I'm I'm a small business and I don't qualify for much of the other set asides. Um I may or may not be able to write myself, you know, a narrative into the 8A program at some point, but I'm just a small and I I haven't had much past performance, maybe a subcontract um, previously at the federal level. And and I've heard this thing about simplified acquisitions. And I know you brought that up a little bit earlier, but every agency tends to approach that sometimes a little bit different. Some agencies don't use it as much, or if they do, they use only specific parts of the organization leverages the simplified acquisition. And it's not posted on SAM. Many times you can't find information on FPDS because it's not required to be put in there the same way as larger valued opportunities. What is a way for me as a company with this particular type of profile trying to, I know that I want that a Department of Education is a, is a good target market for me and I want to be able to mature in that space, but I just want to get started and I want to do, I want to get started without having to just, just subcontract. And within that that time frame that I'm going after my schedule and submitting, you know, my hat in the ring for the 8A program, how can I identify opportunities appropriate for simplified acquisition and where does that live inside of Department of Education? Yeah. So for the department. Hold on before you start, Calvin, I'm going to throw <laughs> one more wrinkle in there because Tosh has created kind of the perfect storm that most of these small businesses live in. We're going to throw one more wrinkle in there. Okay. So you, you're at all of these things. You've looked at subcontracting. You're really struggling. You may have even had some conversations with the Department of Education. You're working on your schedule, but you're not quite there yet. You know that, that we're coming into the new fiscal year, but we've got continuing resolution on our brains. We've got sold eight days on our brain, and we're trying to figure out now timing. So we've got all of these things, plus the unknown of timing. So if you put all of these together, like, what do you do? Where do you start? You're like the lone wolf trying to get your small business off the ground. So I, I wanted to add that timing component in because we have, we get a lot of questions. And we have a lot of conversations about like, well, when do I do this? There's no right time. Everything's always just up in the air. So I wanted <laughs> to add that component. Here's the thing. So you are able to find simplified acquisitions but I'm going to challenge you in a different way. So typically we try to find emerging requirements that are already on SAM that may be simplified acquisitions. I would say use, use, use it as a forensic tool. Go and look at expired contracts, contracts that have been awarded already. Go to awards. You can look up specific. So in FPDS, Federal Procurement Data System, they have to designate if it was if they use simplified acquisition procedures, right? And so they have to specifically call that out. You can also use USA um, USA spend, spending. I think it is. Yeah, USA, yeah, USA spending. spending right. Um, and they, there's a, a, FPDS is a little more difficult because you really have to be a little creative in terms of being able to to really use that information. USA spending is a little more easier to use. Um, where you, but I, but I always you, you can also use SAM. And again, SAM is only going to show you what is not on schedule. So there's 
those things that are on schedule, you're not going to be able to see. The mm-hmm. only way you do that is if you use USA spending or federal procurement data system, because no matter what, every contract over 25000 I believe, has to go into um, federal uh, uh, the federal data procurement system, right? So mm-hmm. that no matter what, that data has to be recorded. But I want to start with SAM. And when you look at SAM, you're going to be doing it, again, use it as a forensic tool. You want to look at contracts that were awarded that have that already been awarded. And you want to look at what agencies are spending dollars on these small contracts. Maybe they posted them and they put an award notice out, right? There's a award notice that has to go out uh, for contracts. And so if, even if you just go to the award notice and say, okay, well, who's put in my next code, uh, expiring, con- the, con- not expiring contracts, but contracts that have been archived, if you will, in system for award management, who's spending under your next code under simplified acquisitions? There could be people who are putting them out on SAM and you didn't see it for whatever reason, but guess what? There's contact names, there's office names. There's a, a description of what the requirements are. There sometimes they've even uploaded a scope of work. Take that information, put it put it away in the repository. Okay, so I know um, Department of Education, Federal Student Aid, they awarded a simplified acquisition. They put it on SAM. This is what the scope of work looks like. All right, so I need to reach out to the Ozabu at Department of Education because that 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 checks my box. I'm going to go in USA Spending. I'm going to see what what other agencies under my next code have been awarding simplified acquisitions. Again, simplified acquisition procedures is a element of the federal procurement data system, a data dictionary in which they have to select it. If not, you could always just do it by dollar amount and say anything under. So the simplified acquisition threshold is two hundred and fifty thousand. Anything below that. Right. The only thing you will not see is a micro-purchase threshold, which is at 10000 You will not see that. Uh, and there's a strategy to, to get there first. Oh, yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna ask about that too, but I was letting you go and finish I, up since we- I do really this hope that people listening at this point have a pen and paper or a tablet or the taking notes because, I mean, this is priceless information directly from someone who's living and breathing these systems. Um, and this is real. These are active systems, things you could be doing literally as we're talking through it. Yeah. And so once you get these contacts, uh, you put it in a spreadsheet, however you want to do it, but also have the requirements, right? Um, because you may be able to tell if they're repetitive requirements, mm-hmm. right? So in that, you'll see the period of performance. And when you're having conversations with the Ozaboos, if you get a contracting officer that reaches out to you after, your res- after you reach out, hey, I'm not asking about a current requirement. I saw that you awarded this in the past. Is it possible, a possibility that you can add me to the list? So whenever you award this contract again, that could be a consideration. In conjunction with the Ozabu, you want to see who the Ozabu is. Hey, Ozabu, um, if there's a if there's a um, credit card, a purchase card holder, that might be the person who's a decision maker, possibly a contracting officer or a program office. There's three-legged stool to this procurement game. The procurement officer or contracting officer the program manager, and then, of course, the small business office. Those are the three major players in every single acquisition, right? Now, you can there's legal, but who, nobody really pays attention to them, right? These are people who are critical to really shaping these requirements, right? And so 
when you're doing all that, when you get all that information, that will help you to go back to figure out who that target market is going to be. You got real requirements that have already been awarded. If it's a high possibility that these are repetitive procurements. So you may be thinking and looking and saying, you know what, this is going to be awarded again in 25 or even 26, right? Mm-hmm. This is a this this is a long game too, right? There, things do happen instantly, but very rarely they do just because of appropriations and so on and so forth. Now, micro-purchases. So for micro-purchases, again, you will not be able to see them. That's when you have to try to manifest them by working with, hey, does your office have a um, purchase card holder, like a cadre of purchase card holders, is there, or or is a co- purchase card holder or other duty is assigned within a procurement within a within an office? Mm-hmm. Is it done in procurement or is it done on the program side, right? And being yeah. able to talk to your Ozibu office because they can always do an introduction to whomever that purchase card holder is. Because here's the thing: most time that purchase card holder is just trying to get it done. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, in different agencies, it, it it's different. Like like you said, it 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 may be the contract side, but then it may be the program side. It may not even be headquarters. It may be the people out in the field. If there's that, so knowing, I think that's part of doing some of that research to understand like how the agency actually operates, how they're structured and organized, and and how things are set up. And that that's kind of that some of that just initial legwork um, that should be done before you start to ask questions because uh, it's easy. Most agencies that I've seen, even some the smaller ones tend to have quite a good bit of information about the organization in general on the website and that's publicly available. And so there are several different ways that we typically purchase on that purchase card or the micro purchase threshold. One is a direct award to an vendor. Every vendor has to be in system for award management in most cases, right? Mm-hmm. There are times that you can get a waiver. No one likes doing waivers. Okay. <laughs> so if you if you can get in the system for award management, that's good. You you can go fishing. That's about all you need to do. However, I talked about GSA schedule. There is something called GSA Advantage. So let's say you're selling pens, pencils, supplies of sorts. Purchase card holders tend to go to that source because it's easy. There's a there's an online catalog. You say what you what you're buying, so on and so forth. Another way, which is unconventional, that if if especially if it's a supply, go to Amazon, get an Amazon contract, and and sell back to the government. There's Amazon government services where they're selling services to the government, right? Another unconventional way to get those small purchases, uh, but you have to be able to understand what they're purchasing. Um, some of that could be asking the question, but if you're sell, but if you're like a person who does training, you don't have to worry about that. You can sell your training directly to the government. How do you do that? I'm going to take diversity, inc- equity, and inclusion. Right. That's something that's probably oversaturated right now, because as soon as uh, the Biden administration said we can do it again, everybody went back to buying it. Right. Pretty, pretty quickly. But what I what what you need to do is and this is a prime example. There was a um, company that came to me. She does conscious bias training. I had no clue what that meant. No clue. 
and so I, my of course, my response would be like, I, I have no clue as to who would buy this. Mm-hmm. But uh, I spoke to her, understood what she was doing. And I said, you know what? That may be something that our Office of Finance Operations may be interested in because they do a lot of sensitivity training, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So introduced her to this program officer. And I say maybe a month or two later, she trained her first federal contract. She trained every senior executive on this conscious, on this unconscious bias training, right? Mm-hmm. Was it on our forecast? You wouldn't have found it in FPDS, right? Mm-hmm. So there are other ways to go to market with some of these products that you might have. But you have to be kind of flexible and understand who's the right person. So if you're training, who's the chief data, who's the chief information officer or who's the who's the chief um, learning officer in the agency? Who's the management component within the agency that's responsible for uh, HR, um, the the EAP system, employee uh, assistance programs? Who are some of those people? Because those are the people I need to talk to. Now, your target market could be a little broader at that point, right? Because almost every agency needs the services, but you do need to try to hone in so you can kind of saturate that market with trying to figure out, talking to the OSBU, talking to the contract, and talking to the program offices so they all are familiar with what the rules requirements are. I There's been times where I've seen people come and we don't we don't have a scope because we're not looking for this requirement. Right. And together we're doing like alpha contracting to develop a scope and figure out what the customer may need and subsequently uh, issue the contract. And that, I mean, really ties into the, the, the crux of our conversation. There are conventional as well as non-conventional ways, but they're, they're key components. One is being prepared. So I won't call it doing your homework, but making sure you have the <laughs> cold, not to call it the season, um, but Making sure that you're prepared is what it really boils down to so that not only are you um, having focused on your target market and having identified that right customer set, you're not only having that conversation, but also making sure that the mechanism for them to be able to reach you and work with those services. And, and to the point that Calvin made, there's some easy things you can do like SAM registration. Obviously, GSA schedules take a little bit more work, but there's no one-stop shop. There's a lot of different ways and a lot of different um, creative mechanisms that you can take to start doing business with the government. We typically at this point transition into kind of our, our lessons learned, but we wanted to, in this case, really get into some additional kind of characteristics or things that we've talked through, many of which already about doing business with education. We talk a lot of, in a lot of our podcasts about strategic partnerships. So I want to ask the question to you, Calvin, about as a small business, how you see businesses that come to your agency successfully partner. I mean, they're, you know, some of the micro, small, and very small businesses partner with larges and try and broker those relationships, which can be incredibly difficult when you're talking about large, large companies. Some take the smaller route. How, when you have recommendations or have people call and say, hey, we're, you know, we're looking to team. Are there favorite companies that, you know, Ed works with? How do you structure those conversations and provide feedback to those asking kind of questions about strategic partnerships and that path forward. I'm sure you get those questions too. Yeah. And so subcontracting uh, is a easy answer because in theory, every contract over 700 and some change 
has to have a subcontracting plan. The subcontracting plan has to have, it actually goes further than what we are, than what we have in terms of prime contracting, because you have to, there's small business, there's veteran-owned small business, which there's no set-aside for veteran-owned small business, right? Right. And a prime contract. But in a subcontract, we ha- we can get credit for a veteran-owned. There's, of course, the service disabled. There's the small disadvantaged business, which, again, is another one we can't directly do a set-aside for. There's small disadvantaged business. In most cases, you can get an opportunity. And, of course, the hubs, right? Mm-hmm. But subcontracting with large businesses is not always easy. And often hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. Say that. <laughs> say that. We got to say that one more time. <laughs> it's not always easy. And there's several reasons why. Because just because they have goals don't mean they want to help you in any kind of way. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's become apparently clear. So I sometimes make introductions but then sometimes it kind of fizzles out. Why? Because at the end of the day, the large does want to know what's in it for them. Mm-hmm. So then I go back to what I was saying earlier. Why is it important for you to build relationships? Because those relationships will be your gold. A, co- a large business will oftentimes come to you and say, hey, Tasha, what relationships can you bring me? What opportunities can you bring me? And if you say, hey, I'm just here to 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 try to get a contract from you. It may not it may not work out. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're still they're gonna there's come a point where they're gonna say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna put you out front because you're a woman-owned small business, and I know that I can probably get in on this contract. So I we're gonna try to team together. And with your That's technical gonna... and with your technical credibility being a woman-owned, I know that you're not gonna screw this up. So that part too. That part too. So so at some point you will have a a bargaining chip, but you don't have a bargaining chip if you haven't talked to enough people to earn your bargaining chip, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have relationships. You have to know somebody. Right. Now I know people who just compete on contracts and spend a lot of bid dollars competing on contracts. And you could you could probably do well, especially if you just bid consistently, right? Just kind of sheer numbers, you may win something at some point. However, it's much easier if you know some intel about the requirements because you can help yourself and you can help those who you choose to help once you have those relationships developed. Why? Here's a case in point. If some large business calls and wants to meet with me, I may not meet with them, especially if they're not doing work with us. I have no interest. Mm-hmm. Now, if a small business says, hey, Calvin, I've been working with this large business and um, they're trying to they're interested in education. Uh, and I think they're going to do right by sub and in, in the subcontracting if they get a, an award. OK, I want to talk to them. Right. Because I do have an interest in a diverse amount of suppliers of all types. Now, my other Osbu colleagues may not say that, but there is no value to the government in terms of just a business standpoint to have a small amount of contractors of any size. Correct. Correct. You want to have a diverse, you want to have a robust supplier base if you want to be 
to be able to get good pricing and to get innovation and to get some of these uh, some of these um, attributes that we want to pull from our contractors. And if we only have three contractors, what incentive is them to, incentive is it for them to do anything other than take your money? There's yeah. none, right? So I'm always looking for large businesses who aren't doing work in our marketplace to come into our marketplace. So if I notice that there's someone that that don't that doesn't work with us, but I also may smell that they're not going to treat my small businesses well, I, I'm not going to talk to you or have limited conversations. But if mm-hmm. a small business is telling me, hey, I'm bringing along this guy, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, let's have a meeting. There was a large business who I I personally am trying to limit their presence here in Department of Education because I think that they are um, taking us to the cleaner and we're a cash cow and I don't and I can't stand for it. And so they actually came to me. And said, oh, yeah, we, we, we love the Department of Education. I'm like, I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. Uh, and they were like, hey, we want to meet, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I'm like, I really have no interest in meeting with them unless they're going to be able to provide me with some subcontracting opportunities for some of these smalls. They, but what they said to me was, they said, hey, you know what? We're actually looking to start a African-American small business program where the prime, we're looking for African-American primes that are doing data collection and, um, and, and data analytics. And we want, we're going to put them out front and we're going to back them as, as a large prime. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, now that changes my, my mindset. Now, the question now becomes, how did this large company want to team up with this guy outside of his color? And it's his technical competency. Mm-hmm. He's a PhD in statistics. He's written papers. He's published. Uh, but he also had relationships with NSF. And there was another agency in which this company had no presence. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right. And he so, was probably helping them develop some additional competencies that they probably did not have as far as the other, the larger company, because that tends to be the case Oftentimes, um, I know on contracts that I've been on as a small or even as a consultant, many times a lot of these other companies, like larger companies, they claim the competency, but their subs are the ones who've actually delivered de- delivered the competency or the capability. But they, once it's under their contract umbrella, they they kind of that's their that's part of what their bragging rights are for that particular type of capability. So it probably was that piece as well. Well, and I tell I tell my my program managers, right? They want to get to the large shiny object, these mm-hmm. large primes. And oh well, Calvin, you know they have um, they have this they have the capacity to to do this. And I was like, do you really think these large businesses have people just sitting on the side waiting for you to give them a contract? No, that's not how business works. How do you think they got rich? Not by having holding a bunch of people. Overhead will kill your company every single time. Every time. So if you got people who you can't charge to a program, that's overhead. Mm-hmm. So what do you think they do? They subcontract Tasha or Yas, who's mm-hmm. a smart, smart technical capabilities. And they're going to subcontract and they're going to tell you, government, hey, I got this capacity. And here's my proposal saying that I got this capacity. But that capacity is only because 
of their subconscious. They don't keep people like that on the books. It's too expensive and overhead kills. Yeah. Right. They don't want they don't want indirect costs to be high. They are their indirect costs are high anyway. They're yeah. not gonna add to it. Yeah. So so what I'm oftentimes telling them is the talent that you want, you can get to cheaper by going directly to small business. And what small businesses don't realize is they need you more than you need them. Yeah. And that's, you know, something another kind of area that we hope that people are have, you know, our listeners have as a takeaway that as a small business, while it, it it's hard, it's you know, it's tough to get started. You have a value in this marketplace. There's a reason it exists. There's a need there. It's just identifying it, getting your name in the game, developing those relationships so that it's apparent to the people that need those services that you're there and you're available and prepared to help. Because there's no shortage of work. There is no shortage. There's no shortage of work. (laughs) And so, again, if you take it real, you drill it down, there are tons of problems that need to be solved. Exactly. Yeah. And and what happens is, and this is another thing that you that that you know you as small businesses should think about. The problem, the problem needs to be solved. And there are people who are given a pile of money to solve a problem. So they're going to try to reduce their risk as much as possible. And so in some cases, they think, oh, well, if I go to this large business, I that's a name I know. There's mm-hmm. no way I can mess up, even though they mess up all the time. <laughs> yes, that's so right? very true. Yeah. So that's why relationships and your credibility will help you because you can put that program officer or program manager at ease and reduce the amount of risk because now you don't seem like a risky decision. Mm-hmm. It yeah. really is all about risk. And as long as you're not seen as a high risk, that means you have a higher probability of getting a contract. But if you seem risky, they're not going to do it because they're a steward of these monies. And the way it works is nobody wants to be in a bad contract situation because anything, the worst thing is trying to mitigate poor performance on a contract. That is, you got to do cure notices. You got to do, there's, it gets ugly and no one wants to deal with it. Even if it means they got to circumvent the small business rules they know we have just so they can feel like they're not going through that risk. Right. Mm -hmm. So, again, building these relationships, allowing them to see your credibility, allowing them to see your competency to solve their problems. Not don't don't even think about the contract to solve their problems, because it may not be a contract. It may be other transaction authority. Maybe a broad agency announcement. It could be um, a purchase order. It could be it could be um, a grant. It, there's a many different ways that we mechanism we use the fund that are not your traditional contracts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's small business innovation research, right? There's there's a technology one. There's different tools, and those are just tools. But again, build relationships, focusing on how to solve the problems. And then be ready on the back end to have the tools in place so you can close the deal. And on that note, we are going to start to wind down our discussion. But before we do, we want to touch a little bit on the up and comings. So we know that 
Department of Education has a critical role in establishing policies on hot current issues like what you stated before, the federal financial aid um, for education, as well as distributing and monitoring those funds, collecting data on America's schools and disseminating research, focusing on uh, national attention on key educational issues and more. And so we want to know What's over the horizon for your office in supporting small businesses that are that's looking to support education's needs in the coming months? So um, we have a unique program that I developed last year. It's creating and leveraging acquisitions for small business successor strategies, and it's class. And the way we the way we use it is we look at if you think of basically like a business development approach, right? We look at, I looked at three years, three years of spending data to figure out where we spend the most money. What are those next codes? And then we break them down into industry. And then from that, we say, okay, how many small businesses are in these industries that we've identified in these key areas? And so uh, maybe federal student aid, um, we're looking at large servicers. There's not going to be a lot of small businesses. So we're going to take that off the table. But perhaps we see IT services and we see that not only there's a lot of small businesses, there's a lot of hub zone, there's a lot of services able, there's a lot of women. And oh yeah, we missed those two, those two or three goals. So we hone in on that and say, this is going to be our marketplace. Um, so we have a document that's a pre-forecast document. We go through that pre-forecast document with that methodology and we say, okay, what contracts can be set aside for hub zone, for women owned, for, for veteran services, able veteran owned, for, our, for what could be eight days based upon what we need. And then when our forecast is released, those set asides are identified on the contract. And we believe that we're going to have higher participation because now if Tasha is a woman owned small business and she sees that. Ed has a um, IT contract for a woman-owned small business, and it's on GSA schedule. And Tasha's on GSA schedule. She's going to have a high interest in that, right? And so when I put out the RFI, she's going to respond to that RFI, and mm-hmm. she's going to be tracking it. And we're going to have better competition. We're going to have more more engagement. We're going to have better proposals because now, if Deloitte wants to work with Tasha, they're going to say, "Hey, you know what? We really want to be a part of education." And we know Tasha is a woman-owned small business on GSA. Tasha, we want to partner with you on this contract that education's got. Or you might do vice versa. So we have identified um, some contracts. And we're, we're going to meet with the program office uh, next week, hopefully if we're not shut down, in the, or in the following week. And we're going to be um, really identifying those contracts. But they're all either IT services or professional services. Uh, and we're going to be assigning uh, a set aside and we're going to be publishing that on the forecast. Um, but this year, we're going to be really highly focused on women-owned small businesses and service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses. We were focused last year on hub zone. Right now, I'm meeting my hub zone goal and looks like I may exceed it. But it's only because we've been focusing on it with this mm-hmm. strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the good thing about this strategy is we can pivot based upon our needs. It's just like a weighted distribution uh, of needs, if you will, right? So we just change our distribution and how we do our allocation to each contract. And so uh, stay tuned for our forecast because I try to make our forecast as equitable as possible. 
And one way to do that is to make sure you can see yourself in one of those socioeconomic categories. Intentionality. Yep. Yes. You got it. That is amazing. Um, and, you know, we we hope that we also have some, some listeners that are actually on the federal side, like yourself, Alvin, that maybe reach out to you and say, hey, can you tell me more about how you set this program? So we're we're hoping that, you know, our audience is getting a lot of different takeaways from this to include our small business as well as federal workforce that we're all kind of learning from the information that, you know, our, our guests are providing. With that, I think we're probably going to do a recap. We've hit so many, so many topics. We're going to try and summarize <laughs> and distill some of this information. <laughs> Tasha, you know, I'm going to give it to you to try and I'll oh, augment. Really? Yeah, okay. I'll augment. I'll throw some things All right, in. I say a lot. I say <laughs> a lot. It was great information. I, I mean, I'm going to go back and listen to this episode because I get a lot of these questions or topics you've covered just to make sure that I've got them, you know, straight, even in my head. And this is stuff we cover on an almost a daily basis. So it is, it is. Well, I'm not even going to like make an attempt to cover everything. I'm going to pull the thread on the stuff that I thought was very useful and hit home. Even uh, the comment about the young lady where he was talking about, she said she did unconscious bias. We talk about using the right keywords for searches, depending on the agency. You can always look up different terms and use your investigative skills to see how does this agency talk? How do they write their proposal, their um, RFPs, so that when you create your search syntax that you're using the right terms to pull the opportunities and you don't miss those. And, you know, that's something we didn't really pull the string on, but we talked about. It was kind of in between the lines of what was being said. And it was just very useful um, we got to hear an amazing story about a small woman-owned hub zone business getting their first award at education and um, the spectacularness. Yes, I made that word up. And <laughs> you almost said education earlier too. I, I did. I did. It was in my head. It was in my head. It was in my head. It just rolls off the tongue so well, you know. Um, you know, having Director Mitchell actually answer the phone and call back and talk to small businesses, that is just unheard of like in the space and there are some agencies that are on their game and they and they do that as well but it it is not the standard it really isn't I myself have even been told when I have done that oh you need to talk to one of my (laughs) talk to one of my people and it's like oh okay and you know for me that was it did it didn't immediately turn me off combined with a couple other things I realized oh that's probably not an agency for me because Mm. the culture of the agency is important. And just as much as you want to make sure you find the best fit or the agencies want you to be a fit for them, they need to be a fit for your company too, how you want to work and how you want to espouse. And I feel we kind of got into some of that as well. We went over technical credibility, what that means, having that expertise, having a good track record, the quals, the certs, the peer recognition, clients uh, being satisfied, integrity, showing that you have the adaptability, as well as uh, talking about target market, you know, make sure that you've done some research and that you've evaluated not only where you want to be, but in addition to that technical credibility, what what is the right target market for you? Who is buying what you sell? And not only who is buying what you sell, is the timing right? Because education may buy, may be one of the biggest buyers of what you sell, but if they've already bought all those services on a, under a contract being executed for the next you know two, three years, then you keep them on the list, 
But what you're going to do for two or three years? So there's other agencies that likely buy what you sell and having keeping that in mind. And last but not least, we you know, we got into some of those the the non-proverbial tea about how you know, to be how education is going about being strategic and and working with small businesses and techniques for getting in and talking to large businesses using some of the non-traditional methods and avenues um, of accessing simplified acquisitions or one we didn't talk about. In addition to doing that research on usaspending.gov, also identifying and doing a quick search of what's in the news. What problems are is Department of Education having? Go on a GAO site. Have they had recommendations that repeatedly year over year for the last decade, they just keep having an issue with, you know, these are ways of identifying um, problems, pain points uh, that could likely result in none. You can do an unsolicited proposal or you can go through one of those other techniques or methods um, that Calvin gave us. And I'm going to pause there because I think I did. I, I did OK hitting on all of this. I stuff. think you did a really good, you did a pretty good okay. job. Yeah, okay. I'm impressed. Okay. I would add as our last kind of touch point and, and hopefully a ending motivational note for small businesses, one of the key things I took away from that conversation was believing in yourself as well, that you are a value add to the agencies, to the offices, to the other businesses that you are working to support, that there is a need. And as long as you can articulate what you do, um, and why it matters and how you do it and, and why you are the right fit for that type of product or service, there's likely a home for you. I know people get kind of brush, frustrated and burnt out trying to reach contracting officers, but I think we've had a number of guests that have articulated as well as some of Calvin's stories that it is possible, it is doable with, with patience um, and, and preparation. All right. So with that, um, I, I do want to say thank you again, uh, Director Mitchell, for joining us on our, our podcast today. I hope you had fun. It was great having you on with us. And we want to connect with all of our listeners. Please shoot us messages, suggestions on other content, um, and feel free to volunteer to be on the podcast as well. So again, thank you for joining us on Unveiled GovCon Stories, a Hive 39 media production with our guests. Director Calvin Mitchell of the Department of Education, Ozdabu, and your host, Sasha and Yas. Please subscribe, share, hit the like button, um, and we'll see you on the next episode.